It was already announced that uh, we've ordered a new lapel mic and it's not in yet, so I'll try to use my big speaking voice as if I didn't have a microphone. And uh, fortunately, I'm not one to pace up and down the stage too much anyway, so hopefully everyone will be able to uh, hear me all right this morning. I don't know about you, but from time to time, I find myself forgetting things. Abby's looking at me and would probably tell you that it's more often than from time to time. In fact, if you were in class this morning and noticed me scurrying out really quickly as the bell rang and coming right back in, it's because I forgot to take my blood pressure medicine this morning, and that's pretty important. So I went to go do that. When you find yourself forgetting things, it can prove to be pretty embarrassing. For example, have you ever found yourself talking to someone and it's obvious that they know you and you just can't figure out who they are? I mean, for me, that's 95% of you right now and it's not too embarrassing because that's just the way it is. But at some point, it will become embarrassing. But we've all experienced that, right? You can place their face, but you're just not completely certain who they are. I've also occasionally forgotten what I was going to say when I was up preaching. And when you forget what you're going to say next, all you can do is just sort of stumble around until you sort of pick up your spot again and just hope for the best. I think about a story that my dad tells. When he was a teenager, he participated in a lot of speech contests, and one was for the Knights of Pythias. And in this particular contest, he was giving his speech, and he got through his introduction, about the first page of his notes, and of course it was all memorized. And he got through that, and he blinked. He forgot everything that came next. And my grandmother, who was there, he was a teenager, my grandmother, who helped him prepare all of these speeches, could tell he forgot. It was written all over his face. And so he did all he could do. He groped about for the next words. He quoted from a speech he'd used in a contest the previous year. He quoted from fragments of poetry. He even literally, I'm not kidding, he quoted from the Gettysburg Address. And somehow, as he was coming to the end of his time, he remembered his conclusion, and he brought it all full circle, and it came together one way or another, and he actually won the contest. And afterwards, the judges were presenting him his written critiques, and the one critique that stood out, they said, excellent speech, but it sounded too memorized. Hmm. What I want to avoid, I don't want to be like the young preacher who went and heard an older preacher give some sermons. He, he thought maybe he could pick up some tips to help him practice his craft. And in doing that, he was listening to the older preacher preach, and at one point, he made a shocking statement. He said, some of the most meaningful moments in my life were spent in the arms of another man's wife. And immediately, yeah, he had everyone's attention. They were on the edge of their seats. And so since he had them eating out of the palm of his hand, he repeated it again. Some of the most meaningful moments in my life were spent in the arms of another man's wife. And then he went on to explain that he was talking about his father's wife, his mother. 
That young preacher thought, man, that is an attention getter if I've ever heard one. Next time I have an opportunity, I'm going to use that. So a few weeks later, he was preaching, and that was relevant, and he threw it out there. Some of the most meaningful moments in my life were spent in the arms of another man's wife. And just like it had with that old preacher, he had everyone's undivided attention. And he wasn't used to that. And so he repeated it again with more flair, with gusto, and with gestures. Some of the most meaningful moments in my life were spent in the arms of another man's wife. And he blinked. And he groped around for a few moments. And finally he said, you know, for the life of me, I can't remember whose wife she was. What Paul is experiencing in our text this morning is not mere forgetfulness, however. Paul remembered well. And it's because of that that his words are so rich with meaning. It was read a a few moments ago. He's looking back over his past life, and incidentally, our bulletin article this morning, if you haven't read that yet, it relates to what goes before in the text, so I encourage you to read that. But you can almost imagine Paul has laid out all of these achievements in the past of his life, and you can almost picture him here pausing in the midst of his writing, and he leans back in his chair, and he props his feet up on the desk. And he thinks about everything that's occurred to him since he became a Christian. Once he was looked upon as a great man of influence among the Jewish people. He was a a rising young star, a scholar, learned in the law. And he was a man who was evidently politically well-connected because they'd entrusted him with an important mission to go up to Damascus, and he had soldiers and he had servants under his charge. But Paul had given all of that up, all of that prestige, all of that promise, all of that worldly influence and honor to follow a lowly carpenter turned itinerant preacher who only owned the clothes on his back. And when asked, why? Why would you do that, Paul? It doesn't make sense by the world standards. Paul says, as it was read a few moments ago, I looked at all of that. Verse 7, we can read it. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. It came on. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Paul says, I looked at what I once had and I decided that it was rubbish. And incidentally, that word isn't even quite strong enough. If you have a King James Version, it says dung. And that actually captures the force of the Greek more closely. It's not a polite word. This excrement, manure. Paul says that this was all completely Worthless, as worthless as it can be. Paul had come to realize that you can have everything in the world, but if you don't have Christ, you're poor indeed. But on the other hand, if you have Christ, whatever else you may lack, you're rich indeed. 
He'd come to realize, as Jesus says in his parables, that Christ is the pearl of great price. He's the treasure hidden in a field. He's worth everything. Give it up, sell it, whatever you have to do in order to obtain him. And that's a message that the church needs to hear today. There are no Rolex wristwatches in this passage of scripture. There are no multi-million dollar homes. There are no trendy cars or fancy expensive wardrobes. It, it's why I raise an eyebrow. You've experienced this. I flip, I flip through channels and I'll see some televangelist on there. And he'll say, the Lord spoke to me and he told me that he wants to, you to send him money. And of course, he always gives his own address for the place that he wants the money sent. And we see fellows like this with private jets and with multi-million dollar homes and they're supposedly speaking with the authority of God behind them. And in contrast to that, Paul says, you want to know why I became a Christian? You want to know why I followed Jesus? It's because I looked at everything that I had, everything that was so valuable by the world's standards, and I realized it was garbage. The only thing that really counts is Christ. We see that in, in verse number 8. And then look down to verse number 10. He talks about his one goal. The one thing that he does, he says, that I may know him. The Net Bible translates this, my aim is to know him. The NIV puts it even more straightforwardly, and that's the theme of our message this morning. I want to know Christ. We go through many experiences in our lives, ups and downs, victories and defeats. We have trials, we have heartbreak, and we have sorrow. And Paul was certainly no stranger to any of those low points, those valleys. But he came to know Christ as he experienced his power in his life. And I think the three areas that he mentions following are particularly instructive for us. Notice, first of all, what he says. He says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. Paul begins with the resurrection. He doesn't end with it. And maybe, we don't know, but maybe that's because that's where Paul met Jesus. Paul encountered Jesus as the risen Lord. You know, at one point, Paul had learned some facts about Jesus of Nazareth. He'd met some of his followers. We don't know, this is speculation, but because they were roughly contemporaries, Paul might have even heard Jesus speak on occasion, in person, I don't know. But whatever the case may be, he decided emphatically that he was an imposter. And so his goal, his mission in life to do God's work was to go and to try to stamp out the followers of Jesus. That's how he proved his zeal. He would go and he would persecute the church. And we know that he did just that, hounding them to prison, even to death. Entrusted by the chief priest with letters to go up to Damascus and drag Christians back for trial until that day on the Damascus Road when he was blinded by the light of the resurrected Lord. He met the real Jesus there. We might not often think of it this way, 
But we have, all of us, been in that same position as Paul. We were lost. We were helpless. We were headed for a grave without Christ, with no hope for eternity. But through the power of his resurrection, God lifted us up. He gave us new life inside and out. And we want that power because that's power that the world can't even begin to understand. It's hope, it's assurance, it's confidence that whatever obstacles may come in this life, whatever troubles or trials, we can overcome them and we can overcome in eternity too. I want that. Don't you want that? But Paul doesn't stop there. He goes on and he says, I want to know Christ that I may share his suffering. Now, wait a minute, Paul. That, that's going too far. Sharing in his resurrection, that's good. I'm on board with the power of the resurrection. But, but sharing in his suffering? I, I don't know about that. Most of us have probably heard combat veterans talk about this, and some of you perhaps served in combat, so you could speak to this with experience. We've heard combat veterans talk about the fact that there is a solidarity, a brotherhood that they experience with those that they've stood shoulder to shoulder with. Because of the things that they went through, they suffered together, and they come out of that with a real sense of fellowship. If you ever played any sort of team sports, I think we experience at least some inkling of that. It, it pales in comparison, but there, there's a bit of it. A football team has that to some extent. You go through those long off-season workouts. That was always the worst part. And then you go through spring football, and you work out together in the summer, and you go through preseason camp, maybe two-a-days. And all of that, when you get into the game, you don't want to let those guys to your left and your right down because you suffered together. Alcoholics can identify with this because they've experienced the disease. They know the lows, the, the pain and the heartache. They can identify with the suffering of those struggling with alcoholism. Parents who've lost young children, they can identify with this. They're in a better position to know the particular wounds of those currently going through that process. See, the point of all this is there, there really is a fellowship in suffering, isn't there? We look at Paul's life. We could look through Acts, or we could read where he talks about it in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul was beaten repeatedly. He was stoned and left for dead. He was imprisoned. He was shipwrecked multiple times. And on one occasion, he spent a night and a day in the sea. And that's not even counting the fact that he was driven out of one town after another by people who were hostile to his message. And ultimately, Paul capped all of that by being executed, beheaded most likely for Christ. Yes, Paul suffered. But when Paul looked at the scars on his body, when he looked at the lash marks and the permanent bruises, lacerations where the stones had cut him, he called them the marks of Christ. He says that in Galatians chapter 6, verse number 17. I bear on my body the marks 
of Jesus. Paul suffered with Jesus. Do you want to suffer with Jesus? I think that happens for us in a lot of different ways. We're probably not going to be called to suffer in quite the same way as Jesus did or as Paul did, though I think it's worth mentioning we're really fortunate in this country because there are a lot of places in the world where people still do suffer in that way. But there are ways we can suffer even in our own country. We've probably suffered for the Lord. I hope we have, because if we haven't, we're probably not doing something right. It could be in the form of relationships that we had to sever because they're simply not compatible with being a follower of Jesus. It could be from ridicule that we suffer, mocking because we're simply different from the rest of the world, and we should be different from the rest of the world. But more pointedly than that, Jesus suffered when they brought sinners to him. You remember in the gospel accounts, it says that he looked out over the city of Jerusalem and he wept, he cried. He cried because they had had the opportunity to be God's people, to accept him, to accept the Messiah, and they'd rejected him. They'd rejected the only hope that they had. They turned their backs on him. Sin broke the Lord's heart. So we suffer with Jesus whenever we look out at a world that's mired in sin, that's lost. It's sinking underneath the weight of it, and it breaks our hearts too. Remember, we think about the physical suffering of Jesus, but remember, that's why he suffered. He came into this world because it was lost and it was dying. Do we look out at a world that's lost and dying, hopeless and helpless without Christ, and suffer in that same way? Finally, Paul says this. He says, I want to know Christ, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul says, I want to know Christ by becoming like him in his death. Now that really is going too far, isn't it? We've gone beyond sharing in his sufferings to becoming like him in death. It's only human nature for us to not want to die on some level. We talked about it in our class this morning. If you were in Bible class, God created this world as a good world with no death. And so he implanted us with that idea that we should want to live. It was a good world the way that he designed it. But in a sense, each and every moment that we're living for Christ, we're also dying with him. Each and every one of us, each and every moment of our lives are all moving inexorably to that one day when we're going to lay down this body for good. And we're going to live with him forever. Now, Paul literally became like him in death, being executed by the Roman government because he was a Christian. And if history, tradition is reliable, then all of the apostles, except for John, died martyrs' deaths. They literally gave their lives for Christ. But, you know, even though we might not be called to lay down our lives in that sense, in a sense... We die, we give our lives up for Christ too. 
Best example of this, Paul writes Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Most of you know this passage, probably. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Reasonable service, some translations will say rational worship. The idea reasonable, rational, rational in the Greek, this is that which comes from the highest part of ourselves, the logical, the rational, the spiritual. We're giving up everything that's best in us as a sacrifice to the Lord. We're offering our very existence in submission to Christ. We take up our cross and we follow him. How precious to be able to say when we come to the end of our journey, I've lived out my time on earth for Christ. I've given him all that I can, my time, my energy, my resources, my very existent. And I'm willing to become like him even in death. I think in our age, a time of materialism, a time of shallow religion, there's maybe not a passage of scripture that's more needed to be heard by the church than this one. Because see, we don't have an invitation. We don't offer an invitation that merely promises the power of the resurrection. If we did, everyone would be attracted to that, and that's good. But our invitation also includes the fellowship of suffering and the promise of death. You may not want an invitation like that, but it's important to understand the Lord's invitation always includes that, whether you want it or not. That's the only way we're ever going to gain Christ. It's the only way we're ever going to come to know him. This morning, maybe you don't know Christ. Maybe you've never come to know him. And if that's the case, I invite you today to become like him in the death of baptism. Put your trust in him. Turn to God in repentance. Be buried with the Lord there and rise up in the power of his resurrection to have newness of life, to have that promise of eternal life with him. Maybe you're here this morning. You already are a Christian, but rather than living for him, maybe that power of the resurrection attracted, attracted you, but you haven't given your all to him. Maybe you haven't offered your very existence to the Lord as a sacrifice. Whether you're here this morning as a Christian or not, what I want to leave you with is that if you devote your life to him, you'll find, like Paul did, that it's well worth it. He's the pearl of great price. He's the treasure hidden in the field. You should give up everything that you have in order that you may have him. That's the Lord's invitation this morning. We pray that you'll respond while we stand and while we sing.